Hi everybody, it's your host Jamie here. This week you might notice that the audio quality of our show is not up to its usual five-star par. And the reason for that is that uh, we are currently sheltering in place due to the COVID-19 virus. And Jack is unable to join us in the studio, but we have him coming through on Google Hangouts and joining us after watching the movie. So you might notice a slight difference in our usual audio quality, but we wanted to make sure that we didn't let this interfere with our ability to entertain you. And we hope that you'll forgive this minor inconvenience for the chance to be entertained and elucidated. So enjoy the show. So the leader of the of the Thrak is Jadak. The Tharks, you mean? The four-armed, green-skinned, tusked people. Yeah. Their leader is Jadak, right? No, no. He's the Jadak. His name is Tars Tarkas. There's more than one Jadak. Oh, okay. And his brother is Tardos Mars. No, no. Tardos Mars is the leader of Helium. But he has Mars in his name, so he's the leader of Mars, right? No, no, there is no Mars. You're, you're, you're thinking of Barsoom. Isn't it Jarsoom? No, Jarsoom is Earth. God, this is not that hard. Wait, so who's who's Sabthan then? Sabthan is the leader of the Zodongans. Who? The evil faction of the Red Martians. Right, right. So who's Deja? <laughs> Welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my Red Martian co-hosts. My name is Jack Olander, a Martian transported to Earth, and I gotta say, it's kind of nice having water and plants. I'm a big fan. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I won't take any back, though. No. <laughs> And it's it's probably not probably not profitable. I learned <laughs> capital capitalism from Jartoom. <laughs> oh God, you're gonna infect your planet. Oh, that's why I'm staying here, calling in. And it's Chelsea Hollowell here, a Barsoomian who just wants to lead a life without having to get married. I don't know. <laughs> so you guys are you guys are from the same planet? Yeah, yeah, you didn't know that? Well, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've pieced together the clues by now, but if not, this week we watched John Carter, the 2012 Disney financial flop directed by Andrew Stanton, starring Taylor Kitsch, Brian Cranston, Lynn Collins, Samantha Morton, Mark Strong, James Purifoy, Dominic West, Willem Dafoe, etc., etc. Big cast in this one, guys. Nice. Wow. 
basically everyone was in this. Yeah, pretty much. And and we've got two Swords and Satire alumni. We've got uh, James Purifoy, who was Solomon Kane in the film Solomon Kane, and <laughs> and Mark Strong, who was in Stardust. And uh, like I said, this movie was a big financial failure. Uh, at the time of release, one of the most expensive movies ever made at a total of $350 million. Whoa. And it only made about 280 at the box office. So, womp, womp. trilogy, you canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean we're never going to get Pirates of the Solar System? I don't think so. I'm sorry, buddy. Oh, too bad. The theme song would have been epic. <laughs> That's true. That would have been really good. Well, we've got a lot to cover here today, but before we get too deep, let's get a little recap, if that could even possibly salvage this giant mess of a film. Here's a summary for John Carter. This was a movie of epic proportions. It was Wait. definitely a movie. I had a thing I was doing and you oh, ruined it. Sorry. <laughs> we'll start over. This was a movie of epic proportions with a domineering timestamp. We have a story of conquest and power, mystery and discovery, a story of love lost and love yet to be found. We did? Sure. John... The titular character started out as an ex-Confederate soldier and widower on the planet of Jasum. That's Earth for all of you who aren't in the know. For you Earthmen out there. He travels to a distant planet and through the many trials and tribulations on Barsoom, also known as Mars. Marsoom? He, <laughs> he emerges as the hero and liberator of Helium and Jeddak of the Tharks. Yeah, if you don't know what any of those words mean, uh, good luck figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> the movie definitely does not help you along. So, John meets Deja of Deja Thoris of the planet or the <laughs> of the Heliums <laughs> of the he city of Helium. They're at war with the Zodangans. A city that is just taking up all the energy of the planet. Hey, wait, I knew one of the words in that sentence. <laughs> Helium? They're two warring nations, and the Therns, this alien race that are of shape changers who are ageless, are pitting one side against the other and manipulating everyone to their whim. They're a bunch of dicks. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in this movie, <laughs> and we'll talk about it. But it's it's all over the place, folks. All you need to know is that John unites the Tharks and the Helians, Heliumans, he Heliumites, Heliumites, against the Zodongans, and they lead a brutal battle in which they defeat the Zodongans, and Helium is the victor. Oh yeah. Also, John can jump really high and really far and really fast because he's got. Powerful Earth legs from our Earth gravity, I guess. Yeah, and so now John has a copy of his body on Earth and a copy on Mars. The Mars body is way doper. So he he's sent back to Earth by one of the Therns, those rascals. And 
he it takes him 10 years to find another medallion to get his way back don't know what the medallion does too bad then he <laughs> no that was about right yeah he speaks the magic words and finds his way back to his lady love deja because they had gotten married not that we ever get to see that that was uh for the sequel that is never going to happen yes the magic words Klaatu Verata Necktie. Necktie. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's that's all you need to know. End of summary. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the worst part is that was a perfectly adequate summary. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, yes. Did a better job of explaining the movie than any content of the film itself. Then on that note, let's head into the delve. This is the delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, lore, and making of John Carter. Guys, do we ever actually cover the making of these movies? Sometimes. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I want to start by saying it is very hard to cheer for a movie where the lead character is a former Confederate soldier. Yeah, I was hoping to spare the listeners of some of these unfortunate details. Well, I fucked that up for you. <laughs> if you unless you want to, unless you want to cut this part of the show because you do the editing. Yeah, I mean, if you wondered why I left so much out in the summary, you'll find out soon enough. So, let's go over some of the lore here that this story tried to set up. How about that, guys? Sounds good to me. Yeah. So, as you did hear, there, uh, the Martians have different names for all of the planets in the solar system. And the only ones I bothered to write down were for Earth and Mars. Um, Jasum for Earth and Barsum for Mars. But they all have a very similar name. In fact, Earth and Mars are the two with the similar names, which are nearly identical. All the other ones sounded pretty unique to my... Isn't oh. that... It's probably because Earth and Mars are, like, incredibly similar planets, right? Yeah. Like, if you look at this movie, we see, like, big stretches of expanse and desert and everything in Arizona. And then that's what Mars looks like. So that's that's why Mars and Earth are, are practically the same planet, right? Yeah, Arizona is the biggest landmass of Earth, so it makes sense it would be compared to that. So, Barsoom is a dying planet, but it still has some air and life on it. And if you thought that Barsoom was a dead planet, then you're a fool. <laughs> I, you I, thought you can't live on Mars? What the fuck? <laughs> I, I did think that. Wrong. Elon saw John Carter. Elon Musk, that is. And he's like, oh, why aren't we living on Barsoom? I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess I'll have to go pray to Isis for forgiveness. Yes. So, as I mentioned in the summary, the, the city of Zodanga is at war with the city of Helium. Those are both populated by the Red Martians. They're the, like... Human humans that have red skin. I mean, and they're all um, like they have tattoos or they have like birthmarks that look like red tattoos on their skin. 
Yeah, they're all like really into. They were like super into the '90s, like new metal scene. So they all got like they that you know tribal tattoos were really in. So they all went out and got that, and then nobody ever talks about that anymore. <laughs> they just everyone has them. Everyone accepts it. Nobody talks about it. It would be rude. It would yeah. be rude to bring it up. Everybody would prefer to get that phase of their life. Right, but there's just no way to remove the tattoos. So, John kind of drops in the middle of this civil war on Mars. By jumping really high into it. <laughs> yeah. And everybody on Mars, or Barsoom, worships a goddess. Did you guys catch her name? Isus. Isus. And, um, it seems like the Tharks, the four-armed, green-skinned, tusked Martians might be the native Martians. At least the allegory is that they are similar to the Native American peoples. Was that the, what the movie was trying to do? Oh boy. Yeah. It's an allegory for the Civil War. You've got the two sides that are uh, of the Red Martians that are fighting against one another and the Tharks that are kind of like, in they're coded as indigenous peoples. And they're the ones who are the original inhabitants of the land. And they seem to me like the ones who were the original worshippers of Isus because all of the car ancient carvings of Isus also have depictions of the Tharks kneeling at her feet. Meanwhile, the Red Martians are going brother against brother in this civil war. And they <sighs> seem yeah. And they seem to have um adopted the religion of the Tharks, who are the Native Americans in this allegory. So, I mean, which side of the Red Martians, then, is fighting for states' rights? Huh? <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just offended, like, most of our Southern listeners. Oh, who, who is that? I doubt it. The, the, a lot of modern Confederate apologists say that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about that. states' rights. My point was that we don't have any Southern listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We must. <laughs> I, I also really like how in the Bright episode, we were all like, you mostly, Jamie, were like, oh, I'm really worried about this being a political episode. And then this one, you're just like, boo, he was a Confederate soldier. <laughs> it was in the text. <laughs> I, it was in the text. I mean, you're right, but like... <laughs> Pretty political. Yeah, it is. It's, but yet it shouldn't be. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, everything yeah. is, but... So, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it, though. <laughs> yeah. So the Therns are this race of uh, bald men... Hey! <laughs> <laughs> ...who are shape changers, and they have this technology of the Ninth Ray. Whatever I, that is. <laughs> I thought, no, I thought DJ had the technology of the Ninth Ray. No, it's what it's the technology that the um wait, I have to look at my notes. It's the technology that the Therns control and they were trying to keep her from discovering it cuz she was about to discover it. Right, they're trying to uh prevent the Red Martians from ever gaining any advanced level of technology. You know, even though they have ships that fly on light, Deja's trying to like Deja the scholar who's trying to like get them a technology that will like prevent their need to go to war and the therns 
don't want them to stop being warlike because th then they might unite against them or like see that they don't need to be fighting and then they can't control them. Well, yeah, the Therns are um, kind of an ageless race that um, one of them describes themselves almost like a plague to John Carter when they have him captured. And the way that they describe it, they are like managing worlds and toying with nations and so they seem to feed on strife. He says to him, we feed off of this, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, I think he's being more metaphorical, where he's just really saying, we're just keeping you people fighting so that we can always be in charge. And he says, like, we've done this for thousands of years, and we'll do this even, like, even when your stupid, worthless Earth planet is gone, we'll still be doing this all throughout the galaxy. And nobody, none of the Red Martians believe that the Therns exist. They think they're a myth. That's what the Therns want you to believe. Exactly. Better be careful or the Therns might be watching you. Oh god, are the Therns listening right now? Probably. Who's that with that glowing knife? <laughs> Guys, am I a Thern? <laughs> Would I know? No, you're not bald, but I am. Oh uh, boy. I guess that makes me the most suspicious one. Are you a sleeper agent? Maybe. I'm often sleepy. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> That's my secret. I'm never sleepy. So that's about all of the lore that people might need to know before we start talking about the themes, I think. It's, if it doesn't make sense now, it won't make sense after you watch the movie either. It never will. <laughs> so conquest, power, and control is one major um, grouping of themes that was a common um, idea throughout the movie. The different types of conquest were perpetuated between peoples uh, in the form that we talked about with um, civil war and um, gaining power over others so that you could control natural resources. And what natural resources are they trying to control? Just, I guess, technology and the Ninth Ray? Well, the Zodongans, and specifically Sabthan, their uh, warrior king, want to control others through their might and through physical prowess in battle. The Therns, those uh, weird bald watchermen, hey, <laughs> seek to control people through their superior technology and knowledge. And they believe themselves to be the arbiters of who gets to have the technology to win wars for a short-lived amount of time. They just want to manipulate the Red Martians to their ends to maintain their stranglehold over the planet. And they do that in the form of giving Sabthan a weapon that they know he will use irresponsibly to grab power and to kind of uh, destabilize the political system around him. They don't want to take a side. They are neutral. They just want to manipulate nations and and control the form that history takes on every world that they go to and yet they take sides by distributing weaponry and information where they want it to be they just always want to destabilize everything and at one point they say oh we need to restore the balance but they are always upsetting the balance so i don't get that for them the balance is in the chaos <laughs> i guess so they're agents of chaos. A beautiful symphony of destruction. <laughs> and Helium also maintains their power and control of their 
corner of the planet uh, through knowledge and probably social order. It seems like that is what the movie is getting at, yet we see almost no evidence of it other than the fact that Deja, like, uh, introduces herself as a scholar and a professor. Yeah. But we don't really see a lot of evidence of that. Like, we see that she's intelligent and she is able to, like, nearly or maybe completely unlock the secrets of the Ninth Ray. She is just sabotaged. But that kind of gets swept under the carpet of the movie very quickly. And they don't cover, like, what the significance of that is nearly enough to give the viewer reason to care. You're giving me an idea. I'm sorry. I didn't think... (laughs) I didn't think about it while we were watching the movie, but hearing you describe it makes me think, like, it doesn't make any sense why the Therns were trying to back Sob Thon, the conqueror, who's just kind of, like, spraying bullets everywhere. Like um, an American. Yeah. <laughs> like why, John Carter. Why wouldn't they have backed Deja Thoris, this incredibly intelligent woman who can develop new forms of technology wouldn't they if they're if they want to control a place as long as possible that seems like it would have been the smarter move to me because they could get into her mind and control her if it seemed inevitable that she would learn how to do this yeah but they also mentioned that they control dimwits that was one of the things that they mentioned exactly I, i missed that yeah, yeah, they 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 want to control violent, stupid people. Exactly, those who are easily manipulated, who aren't really used to thinking for themselves. And this this guy is like a warrior from a society that's been at war for a thousand years. So he's probably pretty single-minded in his thinking. Just like I'm a win and beat helium. And they're just like, oh yeah, here's a ma- weapon of mass destruction. Go have fun. And he's just like, oh, I think I will. Yeah. So I think he was much more easy to manipulate if the if they appeared to the princess and they're just like, you want a weapon of mass destruction? She'd just be like, oh my god. <laughs> she might try to like, you know, turn that into like an infinite power source to keep her people and maybe all people on the planet uh, safe and to give them access to resources. And that's not what the Therns want. They want to just basically lay waste to everything around them. You know, that's exactly what uh, Deja wanted to do. When she was showing her father, the king or Jadak of Helium. What's um, a king? (laughs) I don't know. I, I've lost all understanding of words. Um, <laughs> Did you drink that goo from the movie that makes you understand every language and makes all phrases just seem generic and pointless? I wish I had a goo like that. <laughs> but uh, she does tell him she reverse engineers this technology from seeing Sabthon using it. And she's like, oh, now that I know that's possible, I'm going to tinker around till I figure it out. And then when she's re- presenting her findings to her father and the council, um, she's basically saying, like, they could rebuild water systems that have dried up. And they could provide, imp- like, necessary resources and bring peace to the land. So you're exactly right about her. Guys, this makes me think of another question. Why isn't Deja the main character of this movie? I was wondering that, too! 
She's the Disney princess of the movie. Why didn't they focus on her? She's at least as good of a fighter as John Carter, except for like maybe a few scenes where we see him murder about a hundred Tharks with no effort in what I would generously call a Dynasty Warriors-esque fight scene. But I mean, other than that, Deja is the most intelligent, the most thoughtful, the most like emotionally developed character, and an amazing warrior. I'll tell you why she's not the protagonist, though. She's not rooting, she's not tooting, and she's not cowboy shooting. One of the distinct characteristics of John Carter is when the aliens are taking off his strange earth clothing, that he won't let them take off his cowboy boots. That was the your... Princess. <laughs> The princess doesn't even own a pair of cowboy boots. That, I, I, I feel like when we were watching, that seemed to be your favorite part of the movie, was John Carter always having his cowboy boots. Who can say? Only the epic moments will reveal. <laughs> you do make a good point. She is nothing near what I would call an American hero, and therefore not fit to be the protagonist of a film. <laughs> Mm -hmm. She is far too intelligent for that. Also, a few ways that John Carter did kind of work as a protagonist for this is early on, some soldiers in Arizona are trying to conscript him into the military, and he's basically saying, no, I've had enough war in my life. Humans, they all they know is war. These are I don't want to be a part of it. These are Union soldiers led by television's Brian Cranston. Yeah. And then that's kind of why he's so reluctant to take a side in the war torn Mars, because he's kind of fed up with war and especially after he lost his family, right? And and, then, and I think he lost the war too. Uh oh. Yeah he did. <laughs> Got him. And then uh in addition to that, there's a scene where he's running away from these soldiers in Arizona, and he's met with a group of Apache warriors who are there. And when the Union and the Apache are kind of facing off before they fight, John Carter is speaking Apache with them, which means he's somewhat, you know, willing to cooperate with Native Americans, which I think set him up to cooperate well with the Thrak. Uh, Thark. 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 With the Thark. Yeah. So, and at the end of the movie, in the final fight, he gets the Thark to rise up and unite under him and go save the day. And so I thought that was kind of a good way for them to foreshadow his skill in that area. Okay. And I'm glad you brought that up because that touches on a, a final point I want to make about this conquest theme. Um, so let me lead up to it. Uh, so this uh, movie is based on a novel written in the early 1900s by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And, One of the main characters of the film in the framing mechanism. Right. And um, I think that this shows its age in that way because the adventure on Mars, Barsoom being an allegory for the Civil War and white settler conflicts with Native American groups. I think it's kind of also a fantasy of the white savior because 
John Carter is a white confederate, and the Tharks on Mars are analogous to native groups, but they're like a pan-native society. And um, he comes in and is like their savior and leads them to into a victorious battle, and they all unite under his banner, like Jack said. And and you're saying that movies that do that are a bad thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because so are they, you are you telling me that Avatar and The Last Samurai might have problematic themes and messages? Yeah, the idea that groups are just waiting for a white savior to swoop in and and lead them to victory are, are problematic. Now, <laughs> let me hit you with one more question. Last of the Mohicans. That one's fine, right? No, I'm sorry. That that same, follows the same trope. Shit. <laughs> yeah, so um sorry to burst your bubble there, guys, but this this one's no better. <laughs> My bubble, no. <laughs> My comfortable illusion about greatness. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't like take a moment to think about that until you just brought it up. My bubble was burst right there. I was like, oh, all those positive endings. I was like, wait a minute. You're right. Those were all white guys saving indigenous people. Did we just ruin James Cameron's avatar for you? No, I still like Fern Gully. <laughs> Fern Gully might be the least problematic of these films. Yeah. All right, so I just wanted to point that out there for anybody who might not have picked up on that. For everybody in the back. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's too bad because with Deja, we really have, like, one of the great Disney princesses now. I know. This is the classic Disney formula of taking an older piece of fiction and, you know, making a movie out of it. Yeah, I think we have um, something for rewriting history in a little bit. Ooh, spoilers. <laughs> but um actually our earlier discussion of the problematic trope of white savior um kind of goes into another theme that i wanted to bring up uh that uh is woven throughout this film that of mystery and discovery and this idea of discovering new lands uh, for white people or humans, if you're traveling to another planet, <laughs> is a, a narrative of a colonizer. And so John Carter is not only a white savior, but he could also be seen as a colonizer. Now, see, that I'm not sure about. He's more of a stranger in a strange land, isn't he? Because he's not trying to bring other Earthlings to Mars. He slaughters thousands of tharks okay that's fair red so, martians so, and red martians and then becomes jirak jadak <laughs> he becomes jadak of all of mars so how are you telling me he's not a colonizer i guess he's a conqueror he's more of a con he's more of a conan type in that regard I a conqueror so. i think it was more of like a happy little accident than anything else, it just it just happened. That he way. was a man, yeah. He was a man with a particular set of skills. But what I'm saying is that this idea of having a land that is unoccupied and that you can discover for your people is a narrative of a colonizer. Sure, and that yeah. that narrative is woven throughout this film. 
a quote un <laughs> exactly uh, a uh, quote unquote unpopulated land. Exactly, that's how I was using it. Yeah, that's what um, white settlers use. Those are the terms they use when they got to America, and that's kind of the idea that John seems to have when he gets to Mars, like. He's discovering it all for himself, and he can just be at the top of their hierarchy because he's the most powerful being on their planet. Yeah, it's a glorified version because, like, ostensibly, John helps give the Tharks independence, but it's by becoming their war chief, effectively. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't actually clear if he remains their leader at the end because he's living with the Red Martians in Helium, you know, since he marries the princess. Yeah. And he leaves Mars for 10 years. But not by choice. Not by choice, but, like, I don't I don't know if he's going to remain the, the leader for that whole time. Also, yeah, when he was living in Helium with his wife, I figured he probably gave up his leadership position back to the previous leader who he was good friends with. But it's not explicitly mentioned. It would be a big fucker play if he was living in Helium and he's like, no, I'm still in charge. Don't don't get any ideas I mean, self-governing. That is the classic uh, colonizer move. You, you install a puppet leader in charge of the local populace to make sure that your bidding is being seen to. But I mean, again, this is a, this is a rather sanitized version where he is viewed by the people that he helps liberate quote unquote as a liberator. And like, it kind of maintains that narrative that, you know, people need to be freed by an outside source. How does this play into the common theme of class struggle, Jamie? I am so glad you asked that this one, this one, this one with a real brain burner, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, because as we all know, every fantasy movie is a secret allegory for class struggle. But also, this is not quite a fantasy movie. This is more of a science fantasy edging to science fiction based on the time that it was written, I would say. Uh-huh. It doesn't have the usual elements of magic right. that define many of the fantasy movies we watch for this show. However... There are subtle themes, and I think mostly it ties to how the Tharks are kind of a native population who is more or less cheering on the destruction of the people who are oppressing them. They view the two sides of the Red Martians as basically interchangeable. They know the difference, but they don't care. They just like watching them kill each other. Tars Tarkas says that in the beginning when he is... Um, explaining to John how uh, the Zadongans and the people from Helium are going to war. And he basically says, oh yeah, it's great. We just like watch them kill each other and it's fantastic. We don't care who wins. We just want them to to kill off as many of them as they can so we can have our land back. Right. So they are effectively the repressed group, the lower class. But we don't see a lot that really... Um, reinforces that throughout the the narrative we kind of see the tharks civilization uh they have like 
you know, large structures and everything that they live in, but they are more or less kind of living in a semi-nomadic lifestyle, I would say. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, but again, we don't get a lot of um, clean delineations there because they seem like they're, they have roving bands of maybe explorers or scouts or maybe... Uh, hunters or gatherers, I'm not really sure. I mean, I would guess that Tars Tarkas and his band were hunters since they had rifles and stuff. But then again, their civilization is clearly too populous to feed off, uh, to feed via just usual, like, small band hunting techniques. Because there are thousands of Tharks, but he was out hunting. So maybe it was more of a game hunt that Tars and his band were on? I'm not sure. Well, it seemed like they were going to the hatching pod to pick up their young. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. And that also brings up a possible class struggle when we talk about eugenics within their society. Yes, that's a great point. Um, the leader who replaces Tars is a massive eugenicist who talks about how now that Tars Tarkas has been removed from power, they are going to start culling the weak, fomenting war, and reinforcing their position as a warrior culture. But Tars isn't a whole lot better. He kind of has a similar, like, disregard for life and kind of an emphasis on only letting the powerful and the quote-unquote useful be a part of society. So much so that he is almost willing to kill his own daughter Sola for making too many mistakes. That could also just be his lawful alignment. But, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, systematic oppression is lawful inherently as well. So I think it works. It still counts. It is lawful in regards to, (laughs) if it is written into the law, then people who uh, have a interest in upholding or obeying the law are likely to follow along with it regardless of their moral compass yeah oh yeah a big part of this right and it might not be part of the class struggle theme at this point but one of the big themes is you know wild west and let me elaborate on that a little bit in order to do the right thing a lot of the times in this movie john carter convinces people to break the rules right and he's breaking every rule not that he was ever forced to be a part of it but when they try and when anyone tries to enforce rules on him he tries to break it right mm-hmm. when the union soldiers in arizona tried to conscript him into the military he jumps out a window to get away and he knocks out a guard and he runs away stealing a horse when the Thark capture him and they're like, jump, he spits and he doesn't do it, right? The one time he doesn't want to jump is when he's told to. I know, right? Exactly. When the leader, when the Jirak of the Thark... Tars Tarkas. Thark, yes. When Tars Tarkas is saying to John, like, my, you know, she's basically going to get killed because you messed up again. And I told you not to do this. John is like, just let me run away. And I'll take her with me. You know, break the rules. And then Tars Tarkas agrees, but that's breaking the rules to do the right thing as well. And then the princess is supposed to marry this conqueror in order to save her people. And 
she's like, I won't do it, which the movie says is the right thing to do. Whether, you know, that's a morally gray area. I won't say if it's right or not. But, the you know, she's going against what her father, the king, says. I'm sorry, the giraffe. That's right. I don't know what a king is, but breaking the <laughs> rules and doing what you think is right, which is very cowboy, and it normally takes the form of violence as well. Yeah. yeah, Wild West. That's what that is. Yeah, this movie does a lot to reinforce the image of the wild frontier that needs to be tamed by the heroic main character that was very common in Western films. White man. Mm -hmm. Also, I'd really like to quickly touch on the idea that this civil war on Mars has been going on for a thousand years. Yeah. That's, a, that's a while. That's so long. We call the Hundred Years War the Hundred Years War because it's a significantly huge amount of time for yeah. a war, right? Yeah. And that wasn't even officially like a full-length war. It wasn't on for a hundred years. This movie says... Oh, it, bad uh, advertising. I know. What the heck? But this movie says 1,000 years of war. And I... I don't know if that really means like 1,000 years of constant battle and bloodshed. Yeah, I mean, Surely. we know that they don't measure like distance in the same way that Earthlings do. So maybe their time frame is very different too. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Another thing, though, about this war is one of the sides, the Bazingas, what are they called again? <laughs> Zadonga? The Zadongans? Well, the city of Zadonga is responsible for destroying Mars. And what I mean by that is it's sucking up the water somehow. It's destroying the vegetation, all the natural resources. The planet is a, you know, arid desert because of Zadonga, the moving city. Why? Because fuck nature. Yeah, it's true. I don't know. Hexus one. It all goes back to Ferngully. Um... Are you saying that Barsoom is Pandora? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it could be. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah, a city like that existing kind of means that everyone is going to go to war with you, everyone who wants to keep living on the planet. So if it's taken, I'm my assumption here is that it's taken a thousand years to destroy that machine, which, you know, you got to be pretty bad at offensive capabilities not to be able to destroy something over the course of a thousand years but, but when, uh, when when you've got bureaucracy entrenched in a system it's difficult to take direct action yeah and um you know are you saying that if there's a nation that wants to just take all of a world's natural resources and refuses to see their part in those resources dwindling and it might be causing the death of all the things on the planet that other people might have a problem with that yeah that should be stopped asap man i wonder if there's anything like that going on in our reality probably not who knows but you know what just like John Carter, it's probably the Illuminati keeping it going. <laughs> wait, wait, the Illuminati were in this movie? I mean, what was the name of the magic group again? The Therns? 
Yeah, the Therns are basically the Illuminati, right? Yeah, they I run can see everything that. behind the scenes with magic. Yeah. There's a secret organization that could be anyone at any time. Yeah. I mean, I believe what you would call magic, they would call technology. The ninth color. The ninth ray. <laughs> the ninth ray, exactly. <laughs> I can't wait till Earth discovers the ninth ray. Nice. <laughs> well, guys, I think that. This seems like the perfect time to move into evil, stupid, or misunderstood. This is evil, stupid, or misunderstood. The part of the podcast where we take a look at the principal antagonists of the film and determine if they're misunderstood or maybe evil or they could just be stupid so guys we have a few kind of villain groups here we've got sab fan and uh mattis shang the uh the leader of the therns and um i don't know is john carter the real villain here let's find out well yeah i think that the zodongans are definitely antagonists it's unclear whether they are actually the ones that have devastated the planet or if that's just the common narrative of mm -hmm. that world and they're being blamed for it right and i think that being at war for a thousand years when any groups are feuding it, it's like it just perpetuates this conflict is just perpetuating itself they, it seems like it would be hard for anybody to keep real track of what started it. Yeah, it gets to the point where whoever started the war, everyone has done their part in contributing to it. And so, when you have two powers that are more or less equally strong, like military-wise, it seems like they're fairly evenly matched. Yeah, so if, like, when two groups are feuding, if they don't want to just feud ad nauseum or to the point where they kill each other off they need to sue for peace and just kind of forgive you know but um that can be hard for people to do when they've lost loved ones so yeah understandably yeah but um so it's hard to know if they're a real antagonist because the movie paints them as such and, you know, we don't know if that is propaganda or what's real. <clears throat> but just through the process of watching the movie, I would think that the Therns seem to be the real villains. Yes, they're the ones controlling both sides. They're, they're the ones manipulating both sides. And all sides. They're on many worlds. Yeah, we just don't see their specific role anywhere else but Earth a little bit. And even yeah. that's like, we don't, they don't, he doesn't allude to which wars they have caused, unless he just means the Therns have caused every war on Earth, too. You could extrapolate that uh, from seeing what they do on Mars and seeing that they have agents on Earth. Yeah. Another reason you could extrapolate that they've had their hands in every Earth war is because the glyphs that they use for their solar maps and whatnot, the written language that they have is cuneiform from Acadia, you know, 
the ancient Middle East. Yep. And during the credit sequence, when we're looking at John Carter's notes, when he's been researching them, it also shows their symbols in Aztec carvings, Mesoamerican art, and stuff like that as well. Of course, so, of course, this movie had to support the very racist ancient alien theory that no non-white civilization could possibly have advanced civilizations or have advanced technologies, and therefore they must come from alien sources. Yeah. Yeah, but then again... Every thern that we see is white, and they're also in the Caucasian areas as well. So it kind of supports the ancient alien theory, but it might be a less racist version. It could just be maybe hopeful thinking. But yeah, we'll anyway. let you we'll let you believe what you want to believe, listeners. Yeah, I suppose. I wouldn't call them stupid because the movie presents them as being very smart. <laughs> Fair. Even though they have the unfortunate habit of monologuing their plans. Yeah. They tell John Carter a lot of information. Yeah, usually the downfall of any villain. They don't get a lot of chance to talk to anybody outside of their own race, so you know. Fair. About their plans, specifically. Yeah, at that point, uh, Mattis Shang is just showing off. Yeah, I guess he thinks that uh, John Carter is going to die, so... No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. They're kind of evil in the way that you could say a plague or a virus is evil. Except they have agency. They're choosing to do these terrible things. But they are behind every, almost every con major conflict. And um, they're like an infestation into the uh, political hierarchies of many different worlds. And so how do you uproot an infestation like that when you can't even identify it? Because they can shape change to look like anybody. They are the invisible enemy. Yeah, so it's kind of like coronavirus. <laughs> These things are one and the same. No, I'm convinced. I'm yeah. on board. Yeah. Are you saying that Disney knew this was going to happen? <laughs> the virus is a promotion for John Carter, too. Yeah, haven't you ever read about the Disney division of psychics? Oh, I haven't, but now I need to know. <laughs> I was just going to ask if the Therns were behind the Cola Wars, but I see that this goes a lot deeper than that. <laughs> it's a deep conspiracy. So, yeah, let's say that the Therns are evil like a plague. And that means that I guess the Zedongans are stupid for following through with, like, or for, uh, for allowing themselves to be manipulated by the Therns? Jamie. It means that everyone who perpetuates war and conflict is stupid. What a twist. I can uh, I can give a thumbs up to that. All right. This seems like the perfect time then to prepare our weapons and head to the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each share an epic moment or feature from the movie, and then give it a rating in 1 to 10 
3D laser printed wireframe guns. Because that's pretty much the most impressive weapon in the movie. <laughs> Chelsea, would you like to start out by telling us your epic moment or feature? So my epic moment is when John first meets Deja and he takes her sword away to fight and he's like, stay behind me. And she's just looking incredulous at him like, who the hell would dare do that to me? And then he's kind of pushed back by the soldiers that he's fighting against. And then she gets the sword. Oh, they hit his the sword out of his hand. And she catches it. And then she just cuts down all the soldiers. And he's like, oh, maybe I should stay behind you. And uh, I love that part when it's clear that she's a way more proficient warrior than him. So that was my epic moment. And, um, you know, I, I know that we were kind of hard on this movie, rightly so. Because it's a mess. In the Delph. But I'm going to give it a five because it's still enjoyable to watch. And I can see that they put a lot of work into creating these different worlds. It's just that they tried to fit too much into one movie. So that's why... And because it's a jarbled mess. Okay, wait, I talked myself back to a four out of ten 3D printed guns. <laughs> All right, that's a respectable rating. Jack? My epic moment from the film is when John uh, recently lands on Mars, right? Bardoom. Barsoom. Barsoom, even. <laughs> and he's kind of stumbling around, and he goes up on this little mountain, this butte-looking thing, and he finds this strange, uh, this strange-looking uh, growth in the rock, right? And he rubs off some of the white sand, he sees it's glass, and he looks through the glass, and there are a bunch of eggs, and it's the the Thrawn, the 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 Thark. The thark. Yeah, it's all the Thark eggs, and they start hatching. And these awful four-armed Thark babies with little tusks hatch out, burst out wet and green, slimy and squealing, like that. It's vile. And they're, like, <laughs> kicking each other in the head and smacking each other and writhing all on top and crawling and trying to break the glass. I'm like, oh, that's the most awful thing I've seen in a while. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It's wet in their screeches. They screech. And they're, like, they're just amazing. They're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> they were gross. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my epic moment. The, the beautiful birthing pod. Oh, God. And, um... <laughs> I'm going to give this movie... Also, I was thinking four 3D printed laser nuclear weapons. Ninth ray weapons. Nice. Because, like, it's just not... It's just not that exciting. Like, I was looking forward to seeing this because I, I have a good time watching it. I don't need to go out of my way to watch it unless people bring it up that they want to see it, I'll see it with them. It's not a movie I'd be opposed to re-watching, but, like, it's nothing very thrilling. It's not my favorite ride. And, uh, yeah, it, there are a lot of ways that it could be improved. It was trying to do too much, and 
Yeah, just for that reason, uh, four. Respectable. Yep. What about you, Jamie? Oh, I'm glad you asked. My epic moment slash feature is a, a little shout out to any of my other fellow fans of the HBO series Rome. Um, I was very pleased to have a reunion of sorts between Ciaran Hines and James Furfoy, who on Rome were Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, respectively. And in this movie were Tardos Mars and Cantos Khan. Um, it was really cool to see them back together because they had such great chemistry on Rome and we didn't really get to see a lot of that in this movie. But, you know, it was fun. And I'm always happy to see James Purifoy in anything. So, yeah, that's my epic feature. You know, I was considering just giving this one 5 out of 10 3D printed wireframe laser guns. And I think I'm going to stick to that. I think you guys are probably more accurate with the fours, but I want to give this one just an extra little push for just trying to do something and just taking a big fucking swing and just shitting the bed so bad. I mean, the movie is just, it's too long. They tried to make it epic and they don't really do a good job of it. The acting and the writing aren't quite up to par <laughs> but you know everyone seems to give it their all it seems like they were having a good time making it so yeah i'm gonna give it a five even though in my heart of hearts i know it only really deserves a four that's fair good reasoning thanks on that note i guess we better head to the bounty board You awaken on an unfamiliar desert planet, your mouth parched, your eyes sandy and disoriented. You stand up, weary from the long distance traveled, yet you don't remember how you got here. You take a look around and see a strange glowing board floating nearby. You take a sip of the bizarre liquid sitting by it, and suddenly... The unfamiliar letters begin to take shape in your mind, and suddenly you're able to read them clearly. They say, bounties. So, guys, this week I have a bounty for our listeners who want to do a little interactive swords and satiring while they are hopefully sheltering in place and keeping their friends and loved ones safe from the plague. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I thought it'd be awesome... If we had a little contest. Oh, contest, you say? Yeah. What kind of contest? A con contest. <laughs> a contest. A contest with an amazing prize to influence the next episode of Swords and Satire. Oh, boy. What I want listeners to do is to recreate their favorite scene from a fantasy movie using Legos and then send us the video. And whoever makes the best one... We'll judge, and then we'll review the movie that you made the scene from. That sounds great. And if you want to recreate a scene from a movie we've already done, then we'll just let you pick the next movie we watch. That sounds fair. So you could, like, recreate the camel punching scene from Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> 
or you could create the scene where the lovers of Lady Hawk see each other for that one instant of sunlight before they change into animal form. Or you could recreate the final mock garage from the Warcraft movie with the sliding crotch stab. <laughs> Let your imagination go wild and send us a link to it at uh, swordsandsatire at gmail.com. Or, you know, you can shoot it to our social media and, you know, upload it to YouTube or whatever and send us the link on social media. Cool. Well, that's your bounty. Get to work, everybody. Should keep you busy for a while. <laughs> Let's rewrite some history. This is Rewriting History, where we discuss ideas for a sequel, a reboot, or a spinoff of John Carter of Mars. I think Jack might have had an idea. Yes. <laughs> I will tell it to you now. Oh, good idea. <laughs> what is the princess's name again? Deja. Deja. Yes. All right. Let's explore a little bit the idea of, let's, let's say, a, a rewrite where Deja comes to is, Earth. Yes. Yes. You got it. All right. So it's starting out where she's trying to find the ninth ray, right? And she needs to find this rare mineral in order to make her her machine work to create the ninth ray. This right? is great. I'm loving it already. Yes. So she goes on an expedition, right, to this mine that it was has long since been abandoned. So it's just a rumor that it exists because, you know, they wouldn't have the infrastructure to keep track of all those rare resources these days. The planet's been ravaged. Maybe it's associated with some horrible monster like a Martian spider. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. Yes, you got it. And then um, when they get there, maybe they have a bad interaction with a white ape, perhaps. Or maybe just some, like... Or some... Oh, yeah, I think what you meant to say was they run into some Tharks who are, like, holding, uh, holding them up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of them, pretty much like a cut-and-paste of what happens in the original someone gets wounded and she drags them into the mine to save them but then she sees the image of the secret organization the therns the therns and she gets sent to the wild wild west right oh hell yeah with will smith yeah desperado and then <laughs> no not that one but she's in the cave of gold where John Carter is walking into. And he's like, oh, is this your gold? And then, of course, she speaks an alien language, so he has to give her the juice that teaches her English. <laughs> Which is a classic trope of the Wild West. It exists. We just haven't found it yet. <laughs> it's, a technolo a it's a technology lost to time. <laughs> exactly. It teaches the true human language. Who knows what it is or what it sounds like, but they know it. They used to have it in Mesopotamia. That's how we got the Rosetta Stone, right? Oh, yeah, I think that makes sense. Makes sense. Makes sense. And uh, she learns sharpshooting from a cowboy, right? Okay, and I'm loving she, it. 
yeah, she learns to kind of toss aside the bureaucracy, perhaps, that holds helium back. And she learns some of the ideals of the Wild West. Hopefully only the good ones. Only the good ones. <laughs> yes, the good ideals of the Wild West. So, uh, do, do we have to have a training montage where she has to, like, adjust to the fact that she is on a planet with so much gravity that she is almost immobile? Yeah. So maybe oh, she yeah. learns how to gunfight because the gun is the weapon that does not require her to move quickly just to have good aim. Right. Yeah. Oh, dude, there could be an exercise montage in there as well where... Uh, she's like eventually she's like barely able to walk at first and then eventually she's like you know running alongside john carter and she passes him at some point when they're running together and then it's like this hype scene <laughs> and then when they go back to mars eventually she's like superpowers like john carter yeah wait a minute uh, sorry i just got an idea like it you know we learn in the movie that when you travel, your bo- you don't travel, your body gets replicated and your consciousness goes to your new body. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh yeah, so she wouldn't get all the powers back on her planet, huh? Yeah, bummer. She would have her same body back on her planet, but she just has to get the opportunity to find out what her powers are on Earth. And since she's so light on Earth. You know what it's got to be. And she wants to see that water, that sweet, sweet water. She gets to walk on water, baby. How about that? Wait, she's not lighter, is she? Yeah. Does she have, like, hollow bones like a bird? Kind of. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, she's got got a lighter mass. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. It makes just about as much sense as anything else. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. So she's more powerful when she's over water. Yeah, maybe John at some point is like drowning and then, or like he's on a life raft that's about to sink or something and she just like jumps and runs over and saves him and it's this epic discovery of her power. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Wild. Yeah. And then right. she could have a Martian uh, instead of like a full military conflict. She and the Thark, she could just form, like, a posse of them. Because, <laughs> you know, she's Wild West-themed now. You mean of Apaches, right? Oh, yeah, bring them all to Mars. No, oh, but dude, she's on uh, Earth. No, so... she's on Earth, right? So she's... Well, she has to go back at some point, right? To stop the war. I imagine that she would go there and then come back with John. Yeah. And then stop the war again. Okay. With her as the protagonist. Yeah. I didn't imagine she'd stay on Earth, though that would be the full reversal. Yeah, I was hoping maybe she would bring diplomacy to the warring people of the Earth. She mm. would stop, like, World War One or something. She would stop the Thern's machinations. But to, for her and John to both go through, they both have to have their own medallion. So they're probably going to have to capture a Thern on Earth at some point so he can get a medallion to travel to Mars. Yeah. Maybe they'll negotiate for one. Maybe oh. they'll show a Thern the error of their ways with <laughs> reason. I mean, not they. Deja will. I don't think John's capable of this. Like, he'll be like, oh, I really want to kill him, right? Like, let's just take it. And she'll be like, no, no, we have to show him how reason and logic 
can help you <laughs> be a better person. She is a professor. Exactly. Um, I like this idea, Jack, putting Deja at the center of the story. What if that mineral she was looking for on Mars is one that's more common on Earth? So she's able to complete her ninth ray technology on Earth. Yeah. And she makes a medallion for Carter herself. Oh, I like okay, that. Yeah, okay. from what she's researched. Yes. I like that. I guess we won't get into how she actually gets the uh, the materials back to Mars since it seems like it's more of a consciousness teleporter. But since she's able to adapt the technology herself and, uh, and is building it maybe she figures out a way there you go nice i like it i like it she's able to turn the consciousness teleporter into a matter teleporter yeah there you go oh dude she improves on the design yeah oh that's how they start turning the tide of the war you know that's how they really bring about peace by showing that technology can give everybody enough that they can survive without needing to fight over resources Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, during her time on Earth, she and John could run into a Thern and still have a conflict with them. So then she is suddenly face to face with this myth and she has to realize that they really are there behind everything. And so now she we've already seen that she has the capability of reverse engineering technology. So now that she knows that they're really there and that they can shape change with the technology it's the technology that allows them to do this um she would be able to recreate that she could probably find a way to undo that and to reveal them for who they really are then it becomes a total they live scenario yeah oh man i love it yeah that's great it's like a truth ray <laughs> also now that they're pushing back against the thern who as we know, are the progenitors of all military conflict, and they start moving towards a more peaceful society now that the Thern don't have as much control, they can use this matter-transporting technology she made to make a Star Trek-esque food replicator. <laughs> yes, I love it! Solving, solving world hunger on two planets. This is something I've been hoping for for so long. Like any good Trek fan would. Yeah. Like yes. And then the, it can start being an interplanet, you know, interstellar adventure. Oh, boy. Nice. All right. Well, I'm ready to sign off on this rewrite. So I guess it's time to head into the side quest. This is the side quest where we recommend another piece of <laughs> fantasy fiction that you should be checking out after, instead of, during John Carter. And we want to recommend another movie that takes place on an inhospitable desert planet with a bunch of crazy monsters, Pitch Black. Yeah, starring Vin Diesel. The Diesel. I forget when it came out, but... Um, Ooh, like late 90s to 2000 or yeah, something? Yeah, early 2000s, maybe. Um, I loved this movie. I saw it on the Sci-Fi Channel, I'm pretty sure. Like all good time. movies. <laughs> yeah. And um, I just loved it. It's like you're, you're traveling 
to a on a colony ship suddenly meteorites make you crash land on this planet it can kind of support life but just barely there are two suns and you're trying to get your ship back together but you're also transporting a dangerous convict named vin diesel <laughs> or i guess riddick yeah so uh it's just this great kind of twist where they think that he is hounding them the whole time after he gets out and escapes the ship but there's a deeper threat lurking on this planet and it's everything they can do to escape from this old rock and it takes the entire movie to do so but it's so worth it very action-packed and exciting strongly recommend checking out pitch black it there are other movies in the franchise but the first one's the best one (laughs) It's not even a contest. Yeah. Although, I will say that uh, the Chronicles of Riddick video game, uh, I think it's Escape from Butcher's Bay, was one of my absolute favorite Xbox games. Yeah, it was great to watch him play it, too. It was a lot of fun. It was like, Vin Diesel started a video game company and had them create the movie tie-in, and it is actually a good movie or, i'm sorry it's actually a good game because it expands on the universe in a completely different and unexpected way and it lets you be in control of vin diesel and it's like a cool action stealth game so check it out chronicles of riddick pitch black or just pitch black depending on which version you get and on that note we'd like to thank you all for tuning in and listening in as we discussed john carter if you have any questions about the movie or anything we said you should go on to your email and and send us a message to swords and satire at gmail.com you can find us on social media at swords and satire shoot us a message there hey i won't mind i'll probably even uh, respond to you but hopefully we can bring you a little bit of laughter and interesting thoughts while you're sheltering in place or after Depending on when you're listening to this. Yeah, they could be listening to this in the future. <gasps> they could be listening to this on Mars. Dun, dun, dun. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Hail, Hail Krom. Krom.